0: Uh, welcome to uh, Backchat uh, with me, Jim Gould, and James Ockenden. And in Back Chat this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, more uh, COVID-related uh, uh, issues. Um, and in a moment, we'll be welcoming a couple of guests uh, to this morning's programme. But uh, uh, just before we do that, um, I'm going to... I refer at least to an email from, uh, from listener John, who says, uh, uh, let me point out a few comparative statistics about the Omicron virus waves uh, gleaned from around the world for your listeners' interest and information. And then um, John goes on to say, uh, in all the places I looked I looked out, the uh, duration of the Omicron up wave from the point of infection to the peak is around uh, four to five weeks. And after that, a steady decline sets in. And uh, it's quite a long email. John then mentions places such as South Africa, United Kingdom, Singapore, and concludes by saying, uh, I can't help but wondering if the community mass testing exercise is not going to be counterproductive in the sense that uh, stirring the pot vigorously just around the expected natural peak of infections could uh, uh, delay the onset of decay. I'm wondering if the Hong Kong government is looking around the world at the experience of others to inform its management of the Omicron wave. And I have a few other emails from listeners which we'll save till uh, probably till towards the end of the programme because we want to get into a, our discussion now. We're joined um, on the line by Catherine Bennett, who's the Chair in Epidemiology at Deakin University in Australia, and also by uh, Alex uh, Katsanos. Um, sorry, Alex is in our, um, an- another studio. Good morning to you. Hello. and uh, and is uh, Head of uh, Business Advisory at uh, Arcadis Hong Kong and Macau, which is a consultancy firm operating in the construction industry. Um, But uh, first of all, uh, Catherine Bennett, thanks for joining us. Good morning. So um, looking at uh, that comment by uh, our listener, John, um, um, in terms of the way that, the coronavirus uh, waves have been managed a- around the world. Uh, from the Australian uh, experience, um, what do you think uh, other, other places can learn from that?
1: I think we've moved from, obviously, COVID zero, but also this sort of notion of flattening the curve. That was really put in place early in the pandemic, in Australia in particular, before we went to COVID zero, that was aiming to make sure that we had the hospital capacity to cope with the realities of those more severe cases you will see when your case numbers rise, even in a highly vaccinated population. And what we've learnt with COVID is that Omicron variant, where you have much greater spread, we couldn't control it with contact tracing, and in fact we've seen overseas that even lockdowns don't really contain it, That in fact, we could still cope with it from our hospital setting. The real challenge for us was actually people who were off work, who were pulled out of the workforce because they had COVID, not from the severe disease end of it. So we have seen a natural process of, um, as as your listener said, decay um, that happens quite quickly. And in most of our states, we've seen that in about three weeks. So it's not about sort of slowing down and then, you know, inevitably seeing people vaccinated. If it buys you time to get more people boosted, then you can make a difference by ending the wave but also reducing the total number of cases and particularly hospitalizations you might see. Mm.
0: Now, the, the Chief Executive here has reiterated uh, that the government has no plans for a wholesale lockdown uh, to go with the master test, mass Covid testing scheme which is due to take place later this month. Um, Um, But just to remind our listeners, uh, she believed it would be necessary to limit the movement of individuals to a certain extent in order to reduce the flow of people during the testing period. Uh, Mrs. Lamb also said the government would do its best to ensure uh, people had sufficient supplies and keep them well informed about the pandemic. Um, you, you did have uh, lockdowns uh, in Australia uh, um, particularly in Melbourne I'm thinking of um, again what, what, what lessons uh, could uh, you know, anybody observing that learn?
1: Well we found the, the lockdowns themselves became less effective over time that was probably partly lockdown fatigue but also you know the, the last big lockdowns we had was the Delta outbreak And we were still really trying to get that first primary course of vaccine out to the population. And so, you know, again, it was really about trying to buy time. So I think it's important to be very clear about what the aim is for going into lockdown. And if you have this high risk of severe disease, even if it's a a more focused part of the community that's now at risk, it still has an impact on the entire community. But we found, In the two states that put that lockdown in place first for the biggest delta waves, Uh, New South Wales actually held that. They held it for a long time and they managed to hold it in place until they had the vaccine rolled out and then they could ease out of lockdown. Victoria, which had had a history of lockdowns, was unable to get the same level of compliance. So we in fact had more mobility than they wanted, you know, at a time we really needed it quite critically. So important for the population to understand exactly what's being asked of them and what it might achieve. And if there's evidence behind this, modeling and so on, it's really important to share with the community. I think the concern with Omicron, though, is it's so infectious,
2: whether, you know,
1: unless you have people in complete isolation, um, whether it's really going to achieve anything. Obviously, testing the entire population, and a very ambitious claim to, you know, to do that, that then helps you identify, even those hidden asymptomatic cases, which could help reduce transmission but then you have to have a plan to deal with the disruption that brings and in Australia we saw even without lockdown but with people isolating as household contacts we really restricted who was called a close contact but the cases themselves and their most immediate contacts still meant our supply lines started to collapse and our health systems were been really struggling
3: Right. And of course, Hong Kong is about 10 times more dense than, than Melbourne. So we've got a very mm. different challenge here. I mean, do you think we we should have a different lockdown strategy, given how dense our population is?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's the, the challenge is people being aware of their, their risk and, and responding to that and, and what's in place to allow that to happen. We know that the cities that had our higher density areas, like Sydney and Melbourne in particular, have always seen the the greatest concentration of transmission because it's so much harder to control in those settings. But when I look overseas, I mean, we didn't try lockdown with Omicron. We, we knew that it was struggling to work with Delta and Omicron we felt would just defeat it. Um, and it wasn't then, we didn't have the same purpose. You know, we had the primary course, and now it was about the booster program, which is at least faster to roll out because it's a single dose on top of the primary course. But when you look at places like the Netherlands, they went into lockdown, saw an initial uh, drop and then it just took off as quickly as elsewhere whilst they were still in lockdown. So the concern is that you might add this level of of restriction that goes beyond isolating contacts and known cases. Even if you go out and find more cases and isolate them, you're still going to have a big impact from that. If you add lockdown on top to people who, are, who aren't known to be directly exposed but just at risk, then yeah, that it gets very hard to manage that, you know, in, in economic terms and just keeping everything running, I, I suspect. So you have to be very clear about what it adds and if you're seeing the case numbers rise as you are, we're talking about a two week period before you might actually see a, a peak. And so what you can put in place by the time it starts to work, you might have already broken the back of this Omicron wave.
0: Okay, well, also with this is uh, Alex Katsanos, who's a, a partner and head of business advisory at uh, Arcadis uh, Hong Kong and Macau. That's a consultancy firm operating in the construction uh, sector. Um, um, Alex, good morning to you. If we, uh, in terms of Hong Kong, if we... Probably better not use the term uh, lockdown because uh, the the chief executive has said again that there are no plans for uh, a wholesale uh, type uh, approach, but uh, there may be uh, limits on movements of some individuals during the testing period but um, in terms of the built environment of Hong Kong, if you like uh, what challenges does that uh, does that uh, uh, you know
4: throw up well Jim. We said that uh, density might be a problem in Hong Kong, but I don't think it is. There's no clear correlation, according to a report by the World Bank, that density affects the spread of the virus. So the density in Hong Kong is not a problem. It's other characteristics in the city, and that's overcrowding. And the overcrowding means that you put a maximum number of people in the smallest number of space. So in Hong Kong, our infrastructure is such that we have tiny flats for whole families. We have subdivided flats and we have extreme reliance on public transport, which is good on different times because it's quite green and sustainable, but not quite now. It's an old city, so we go small and narrow streets, and finally we have the quality of infrastructure that's not um, extraordinarily good. So we've seen that in all the public housing estates which were locked down, they have acted as petri dishes for cross-contamination. So I'm not 100% sure that if you lock people down in these sort of environments, you're doing any good. What you're doing is you're, not, you're, you're containing the virus from spreading from an estate to another estate, but then you may be, accidentally facilitating the spread of the virus within the same estates, right? Uh, and, and, and to add to that, to, to compound all this, um, it's, it's how old our infrastructure is um, and, the, and, the, and the human infrastructure around them, the management. In other countries, to 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 enforce lockdowns, they've had to rely to uh, they had to rely on the um, um, uh, participation of property management firms, etc., and other facilities management firms and and, and and other bodies like that. In here, we have got about thirty-five thousand buildings that are over thirty years old, and five thousand buildings are the the three nil buildings, the ones that have no property management. No um, uh, owners, corporations, no resident associations, nothing. Nobody knows what's happening in those buildings. Nobody knows who lives there and stuff. I I don't know how we can say that supplies for the citizens that live there, wherever they are, will be secured, or who is going to manage those places during a lockdown. So I think the chief executive is saying that there's not going to be a complete lockdown on purpose, because there can't be a complete lockdown with these these infrastructure conditions.
3: Yeah, we saw that, in fact, in the very first lockdown back in Yamate in Jordan, where uh, the chief secretary visited and said well I think we need to de- redevelop this whole area because of all the, the three nil buildings and, and you're exactly right that food wasn't getting through was it to the uh, the residents in those tenement blocks? Precisely yes yeah so what I mean in terms of transport we're, we're looking at um, the, the, the transport department won't comment on any sort of lockdown but we have a de facto lockdown coming KMB just said 2,000 staff are, are off sick uh, 88 bus routes cut 46 bus routes uh, reduced service, so we, we, we're kind of seeing um, some sort of transport lockdown happening anyway. Is that uh, surely we could have seen that coming? Uh, yes, and I'm not sure this is a bad
4: thing because, you know, I said in the beginning that one of the problems in, in transmission is the over-reliance on public transport, where you stack a lot of people together in one of those means of transportation. Um, um, I, I guess taxis, so this is a good day for Uber, I guess, right? Maybe taxis. But uh, um, uh, in Hong Kong, the, the density actually may be acting in our favor. Uh, because density means that I don't need to go very far to get necessities. Right. I can just walk down my building, and all the necessities, all the goods I need are there. Access to services is very easy. All this kind of stuff, right? So uh, you don't necessarily need to travel to other places. And if you do need to travel, there's individual cars, there's taxis that are relatively cheap, and there's Uber. Mm.
0: Okay. Um, uh, Catherine Bennett, what was the situation with uh, regarding transport, public transport uh, in Australia uh, when you had your sort of sort of area lockdowns?
2: We had
1: um, a very. We moved from work from home if you can to you must work from home. And a lot of our retail, all our hospitality was closed apart from, you know, takeaway. So again, there was a lot of reliance on Uber for deliveries a lot of the time. And we really stepped up deliveries from grocery stores. So people were actually leaving home far less than they would even if they were, you know, at home on holidays normally. So uh, public transport. The other big change for us in our big cities was the cities themselves pretty much closed down. They were mainly driven by retail and hospitality and our large office space. And so the public transport became very sparse. So they kept public transport running, but the, you know, it, it was it was actually, and they deliberately kept it at the normal rate mm. to make sure that, you know, you could have access, that, um, you know, you weren't forcing more people onto fewer vehicles. But in fact, our public transport really died down because a lot of people did start to rely on cars more. So it wasn't the green response, but at the same time, you know, public transport wasn't an issue. And it still is retained as an area where you wear masks uh, and they're now trying to encourage people back into the city. But I think it'll be a slow progression because a lot of workplaces are are only just this week coming back into on-site requirements, even if it's for a few days or not full-time.
0: And how about uh, essential services? I mean, w- what kind of workers were regarded as uh, um, you know, being essential? I mean, obviously, people like uh, doctors and nurses and health workers, uh, uh, police officers. Um, and, uh, I mean, yep. was, was there like a, a, a public list? There was, and that
1: list actually expanded as, as time went on because they're realising that they made special allowances. So if you were... Um, someone who was an essential worker who obviously had to work, you know, in the workplace. But also later when we started to return to work, but we still had very strict rules on what you had to do if you were a contact to the case, particularly a case in your own home, that um, everyone was then required to, you know, stop working. So again, if you can't work from home in these roles, then it took those people out of the workforce. So one of the first changes they put in place as we started to ease things was to say that if you were a close contact but you had no symptoms and you tested negative on a rapid antigen test daily, you could still go to work as an essential worker. And then as time went on, they they expanded that. So that included people working in distribution centres and other places required to keep the the, the country running. And eventually, you know, when schools went back at the end of our summer holiday, um, it included teachers, for example. So they actually had to modify just, to try and get this pragmatic balance between trying to still contain risk, use rapid and testing where they could to try and keep it safe but keep it open.
0: Mm. Um, Alex, you mentioned uh, um, building management and security guards. Uh, Okay, I mean a lot of places don't actually have security guards but but presumably then uh, security guards would have to be uh, on a list of uh, essential workers if we're going to try and
4: limit people's movements. They, they would, uh, but there's, there's a few problems there, right? So first of all, there's a problem of shortage, and second, there's the problem of what powers do these people have to enforce? So usually when security guards work for an authority here in Hong Kong, even then, let's say the West Kowloon, right, and the West Kowloon hires security guards, they can't make anybody do anything unless there's bylaws that under which they operate. Now, security guards in any private estate can't tell you to do anything at all. They can recommend things or call the police, but they're not going to do anything, right, to enforce situations. So uh, moving on from that and going to the shortage, um, there's there's interesting data that are coming anecdotally out of associations. And most professions in the infrastructure section, both in operations and in construction, are reporting tremendous shortages, upwards of 10 percent before the pandemic. Uh, Forget about the pandemic, right? This is where we are. And the government is seriously thinking about policies they can implement in order to, um, to mitigate this shortage that we're seeing. So we're in this environment. We're operating in an environment where um, we have shortage of staff. Um, people are getting sick. And the ones that can operate as security guards or other facilities management staff don't have the power to enforce it. So, so there we are.
3: We're bringing in a lot of, uh, in terms of sort of construction of new facilities and management of medical uh, healthcare systems, we're bringing in mainland staff, is that something that's going to have a long-term impact on Hong Kong's sector, construction sector for example? Um, This is a difficult political issue that probably I
4: can't answer. There have been thoughts for government, I mean, it's not. It wouldn't be new, right? Singapore does it. Singapore does import workers. Macau has a quota system for workers from from the mainland. Uh, it is a way to mitigate shortages that you see in terms of labor or in terms of professionals. So th- there's other ways, but I, I think the go-to in times in non-pandemic times would be to increase innovation and increase industrialization in se- in sectors so that you wouldn't have the need for so much manpower. But if we were to start using staff from the mainland or elsewhere, I mean, that wouldn't be new, it's a measure that is very well tested and uh, works very well in places with similar
3: socioeconomic characteristics. But do you think innovation, for example, in the, in the construction of these new uh, facilities, the isolation facilities, are we seeing any innovation in this sort of, in terms of worker management and, and construction? Um, we're seeing innovation in terms of the
4: standardization of those facilities, right? So the the Development Bureau and the PSGO has been pushing the modular integrated construction, which these units are, but also in Hong Kong, like in the Science Park and elsewhere, we have um, buildings that have completely uh, been built modular. So we've looked at the implication in terms of manpower, and yes, indeed, they, uh, these buildings are not cheaper, by the way, at the moment. Uh, when uh, economies of scale, uh, of scale apply, they might get cheaper, but right now they do drastically reduce uh, manpower, specifically manpower that has to um, fit them out and stuff. Um, so that it 's not necessarily innovation, but there is innovation that accompanies that. The innovation has to do with the digital part of, um, of, uh, of of designing them and arranging the logistics, which is lagging a little bit behind in Hong Kong, although government has uh, initiatives on the way to um, to unify both the industrialization and, any, and the innovation part of it
0: mm. um, What are your thoughts about that new isolation facility that 's opened this week in Ching Yi, the one that uh, uh, took a week to put together
4: um, well yes these are modular units that came to uh, singi um mm. i've noticed that I, i've noticed they um, somebody commented that um, they have mainland uh, sockets yeah. and somebody even con- commented uh, one country two sockets <laughs> <I've noticed. laughs> so um, uh, yes uh, they are feasible they are viable they are modular units that we very well know about uh, I mean the the important thing is you can bring those things in and you can travel them and set them up relatively quickly but how do you set up the infrastructure and the management around them so that when you put somebody in there they don't get forgotten and we find their corpse next year mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. that's the difficult thing about those things that, that you we need to set up a management around those units. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's obviously a big push going on to create more isolation units. I think uh, something like uh, seventy thousand should become available once the projects <coughs> are completed. Uh, uh, do, do you see uh, much scope for, for, uh, you know, uh, for further uh, improving or making available such places? I mean, is there is there is there room? Are there are there old buildings? Are there other facilities that uh,
4: that could be used? Do you think? Uh, I think that the, the government has lifted the cushions to see where there is space and land in Hong Kong to do this or available units and I think they've come up with a number of approximately 100,000 units right uh, that's that's where we are mm. now if Hong Kong you is correct about how many people are going to get sick they're thinking that at peak we're going to be we're going to have 200,000 a day and let's say that we keep somebody like that for 10 days if we make that calculation until the rate of entry and exit equalizes we would have approximately what is that two million people that are sick at any given time so those facilities would account only for approximately five percent for all the people that report um, sick And uh, so you can't use them as a measure to isolate everybody that tests positive to the virus. We will have approximately 100,000 facilities. I don't think there's scope for more because I'm sure the government looked everywhere. So they will have to be used. With, appro- with, with, with appropriate management around them for cases that uh, require some kind of special attention or isolation. I do not know where those cases are, um, but, but, uh, but you can't use them for everybody that tests positive. I think people's houses will have to play that role.
3: Mm. Can we go back to the overcrowding cre- uh, question? Because of course in Hong Kong, I was walking in Mong Kok last night, there were you know, a massive street that used to be pedestrian, but is now returned to cars. So everybody's crowded on the pavements, uh, a perennial problem in Hong Kong. Um, perhaps Professor Bennett in, in Melbourne, did w- what sort of uh, scope was there for making more space for people? Were there pedestrianisation schemes or, or things like this there?
1: Well, one of the big changes in our cities was actually moving to eating outdoors. Yeah. So, so in fact, what they did was um, rather than sacrificing for plants, as you say, you want people to still be at a distance. That they they took over lanes in the roads and, and actually put outdoor. Seating in place. So in my state, Victoria, the, the government funded a lot of these initiatives to put up bollards and, and to allow, you know, for this outdoor seating. So it really has fundamentally changed the way people think and use, you know, the city. And people did distance. You know, I've experienced myself someone walking along the street and rather than walking past you on a footpath which would be a meter apart and, you know, that they'd actually walk on the road. So there were a lot of safety issues when people were really fearful of the virus earlier on. Um, and then, of course, we're wearing masks for a lot of the time, even outdoors, which, you know, change things again. So it depends on other settings in place, how many people are, are out and about. And we're still, um yeah, you know, that's very patchy in, in our states. It depends um, where you are. The city is still incredibly quiet, but also whether people are wearing masks. And if someone goes out and chooses to wear a mask, is not no longer compulsory outdoors, but other people aren't, then they, that can be off-putting for them. And so it's really a combination of youth and actually trying to get some places more vibrant again. But to keep it operating in a way that allows people to distance and doesn't keep some people, particularly those who might be immunocompromised, isolating at home for the rest of their lives. We've got to find a way of, you know, managing this.
0: OK, Okay. well, thank you both uh, very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, that was Catherine Bennett, Chair in Epidemiology at uh, Deakin University in Australia. And thanks to Alex Katsanos, uh, Partner and Head of Business Advisory at uh, Arcadis uh, Hong Kong and Macau. That's a consultancy firm operating in the construction industry. Thanks very much to you both. Um, just before uh, we uh, bring this uh, episode of Backchat uh, to a close, uh, uh, just a few more emails uh, from listeners uh this one from alonso i read out half of it yesterday i'll just i'll just finish it now um alonso is a, a regular correspondent to uh backchat and covid19 and uh, is not uh is not a fan of the uh of the uh community-wide uh testing uh program that's coming up it says um as you reported in your news earlier today, uh, Gabriel Leung and his team at Hong Kong U are urging the government to delay uh, compulsory universal testing until late April. Other medical experts such as Professor Ivan Hung go one step further and raise doubts about the usefulness of having a CUT programme, yet the government is so far ignoring their calls. Similarly, scores of backchat expert guests have in recent days recommended that the government uh, reduces or even entirely scraps the current mandatory 14-day hotel quarantine policy for arrivals because it no longer serves a purpose, replacing this with a seven-day home quarantine. Once again, government has failed to listen, further crippling our economy. And as, uh, as uh, Alan Zeeman pointed out uh, yesterday, resulting in an exodus of expats from Hong Kong. Government must listen to experts, postpone or even scrap CUT and remove hotel quarantine mandates for arrivals in Hong Kong. Uh, Lynn says. there's been a glaring lack of information from the government about what to do with children with disabilities or special needs over the next few months. I contacted various government officials to ask for guidelines in terms of being separated from parents if the child tests positive, but have had no response. Is anyone from the government considering what the effect of this prolonged closure of schools is doing to them with no social interaction? Now, uh, we are facing a lockdown, although, uh, Lynn, I would say, of course, the chief executive has said, uh, we're not facing a full lockdown, but maybe some restriction on movement. But uh, Lynn says, uh, what will be counted as essential services? Uh, My son needs speech therapy physio and occupational therapy and he normally gets this at school an international uh, mainstream school as he only has mild and moderate needs he has been going to private clinics while schools are closed but what happens during lockdown are they essential everyone is talking about the elderly but forgetting about another vulnerable sector of society who are being totally ignored and uh, let me see Uh, um OK, this one I'll leave till tomorrow. But, uh, but Colin says, uh, on a final note for this morning, looking forward to when COVID is on its way out and Hong Kong is getting back to normal. Do something to bring the community together and have some fun, like the world's longest conga, currently 25 kilometres set in the Netherlands. Hong Kong's de- uh, dense population makes it uh, ideal to organise. Thank you for that. That's from Colin. And um, thanks to our listeners. Uh, thanks very much to you, James.
3: Thank you. Are we congering Jim,
0: uh, no, on the way out? Not, uh, not just yet. <laughs> okay. Not just yet. Um, A quick look at the weather before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Uh, mainly cloudy, mist patches, uh, sunny intervals during the day, top temperature around 22 degrees, uh, moderate to fresh easterly winds. The outlook, uh, warm during the day in the next couple of days, misty in the morning and at night. One or two rain patches on Monday morning, becoming fine during the day, uh, dry with cool mornings midweek next week. It's currently 18 degrees, humidity 78%.
3: Hospitals are
2: facing huge service demand. The Hospital Authority appeals to COVID-19 patients with mild symptoms or no symptoms to not go to the accident and emergency departments. For those who have medical needs, they can make appointments at the designated clinics for COVID-19 of the Hospital Authority. Visit ha.org.hk for details. For others seeking consultation at hospitals, please be considerate to medical staff and follow their advice. Together, we fight the virus. The new summary with Andrew Shirovsky. A top epidemiologist says a citywide testing scheme will help to control the current COVID outbreak. But Professor Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health said if the purpose was to get the number of cases back down to zero, it would consume a huge amount of resources for very little public health benefit. Professor Cowling also said the number of COVID cases in Hong Kong could peak in about seven days, but it would only be a halfway mark. New research shows that removing your surgical mask to smoke could increase your chances of catching COVID. The University of Hong Kong and Chinese University found a link between smoking and a higher risk of contracting the virus. And Ukraine says a delegation uh, has left Kiev for a second round of peace talks today with representatives from Russia just across the border in Belarus. Earlier, an overwhelming majority of member countries at the U.N. General Assembly voted to deplore the Russian incursion in Ukraine, calling for an immediate withdrawal. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock.
5: It's time right now on Radio Three to say
1: good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on the Morning Brew. Hello. Good
5: morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you too. How are you doing? Hello. Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you good. Fine, thank
1: you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. How are
5: you? Good morning, Good to see you.
1: On your radio and live online. This is the Morning Brew. Good morning. <laughs>
5: Good morning, cowboys, and welcome to the all-important Thursday here on Morning Brew. As much as possible, the show must go on. Now, that is the message across the board at the moment, and it's what Teaser Ho, the executive director of the Hong Kong Arts Festival, will be with us, you, to discuss at 10 past 10. It's still happening. All of their artists are going to be appearing online, but they're still going to be bringing you the wonderful performances, even in these troubled times. Plus, Tita loves being on the radio. After 11 o'clock, our vet Dr David Gething will be with us. Hong Kong 2022 has made him and vet colleagues all over the place approach their work very, very differently and acquire some new skills they had no idea they would be needed. I don't know if recently you've been trying to get Tibbles into the vets, but it's very difficult, and Dave will explain why. Oh, of course, and answer any questions you may have. Find us on Morning Brew's Facebook page or morningbrew at rthk.hk, anything you like. After 12, we're off to Verona in Italy for our monthly wine, wine, with the one and only JC Viens, who's going to get up super early to have a chat. So join him on Facebook Live.